Thank you. Thank you, church. Thank you, John. I am so grateful for your presence here today and so excited to be diving back into Mark's gospel. We're in the 12th chapter of Mark, and I just want to say something uh, personal to get started. Um, I appreciate you. It's Pastor Appreciation Month, and many of you have been so kind. I'm not sure who coordinated the effort, but I'm on to you. Somebody did something to, to coordinate your snacks and goodies and notes of appreciation. And whoever did that and was behind that, thank you. But I have felt just your overwhelming love over the last several weeks of October. So uh, thank you for appreciating me. But I want you to know uh, from my heart to yours and on behalf of all of our staff that we appreciate you. We're thankful for you. And you give us the opportunity to do what God has called us to do. And God has called me to be a preacher of the gospel. And so I'm looking forward to preaching the gospel to you this Sunday and every Sunday that gives me life and breath, except for perhaps those that I take a vacation like last week. So, Pastor Hope, thank you for doing a great job filling in last week. You'll remember that we're, we've been going through Mark's gospel. We're, we're all the way to chapter 12. And we're about ready to break in at verse 18. So if you're trying to find your place, Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 18. And we're in the context that Jesus, back in chapter 11, he went into the temple and he overturned the money changers' tables. And he said that the temple has been failing in its job. And he's going to be crucified, dead, buried, and raised. And he's going to raise up a new and better temple. A temple that's available to all peoples, all nations, all lands in his, in his own flesh. And that does not sit well with the temple leadership, right? The Sanhedrin aren't happy, so they question him. And Jesus answers their question well. And so then the Sanhedrin say, well, we'll send the Pharisees and the Herodians down. And they ask him a question about paying taxes. And Jesus confounds them with rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar and to God what God's what is God's. But the opposition to Jesus just keeps coming. Have you ever felt like that? Just as soon as you get done with one obstacle to the gospel, here comes another one in your life. Aren't you glad that our ability to succeed in the Christian life is not contingent on our ability, but on the ability of the one who's already done it for us? Aren't you glad sometimes when you stumble, when you fail, when you falter, there's one who never failed, who never faltered, who never gave in, who never let down. That's the one that we worship. Today. So we're going to open by looking at Mark's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. Would you hear now the word of God? Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. Now, if you went to vacation Bible school or Sunday school, you grew up saying, how did I tell the Pharisees and the Sadducees apart? Do you remember that? The Pharisees believe in the resurrection, and the Sadducees are sad, you see, because they don't believe in the resurrection. That's why they're so sad, you see. Some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began questioning him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. There were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second one married her and died, leaving behind no children, the third likewise, and so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, which they don't believe in, in the resurrection when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. 
Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the Scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. Would you pray with me? God, we worship you today as the God of the living. We come to you boldly, not because of ourselves, but because of the resurrection of Jesus, knowing, claiming, believing, God, that we have bold and confident access into your presence through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, we ask, God, that if there's anyone here today who, like the Sadducees, is, is not believing, God, that you offer a resurrection life and an eternal life, that they would come to believe and to know and to understand that you are the resurrection and the life. That you are the fulfillment of the promises of God. That you are the power of God for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus has been under a withering attack since he entered into Jerusalem. He's there to offer himself as the Passover lamb, the lamb slain from the foundations of the world. The one who will be crucified in order to save sinners. And this attack proceeds, as I just indicated, first from the Sanhedrin, then the Pharisees and the Herodians, and now the Sadducees come to question Jesus. The opposition just keeps coming. And what Mark is showing us in part is the breadth of Jesus' rejection among people who should have known better. Right? The Jewish people should have, they had every reason to understand that Jesus was the fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. And yet, as John writes, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him. So if you've ever been rejected or overlooked by people that you've given your life to, you're in good company. Jesus understands your hurt. He understands your pain and he meets you in it. And aren't you glad that Jesus is a comforter and a friend when others fail you? And aren't you glad that he did not use the comfort, the, the failings of others as a reason to abandon his mission? Aren't you glad that Jesus wasn't petty? That his eyes were fixed on his father and faithfulness to God the Father, even when everybody else around failed him. And they were chattering and gossiping and complaining and raising objections to his life that weren't even true. What did Jesus do? He kept his eyes fixed on the Father. And he was faithful to the Father. And the reason that we have a hope today is because Jesus didn't quit in the face of adversity. We ought to be that same sort of person in the world. We ought to be faithful in our local church, faithful to Christ, the one who is faithful to us. We've been rescued by the one who is faithful to the Father so that we can be faithful to Him and that people can see that the Christian life is real. That we have a real hope and a real Savior. You see, in Jesus' day, the Sadducees were a big deal. They were men of wealth and men of rank. That's what Josephus, the historian, called them. So if the Sanhedrin generally can't get Jesus to pay attention to them, then maybe they could send in the fat cats, the controlling authorities, the ones with the wealth. And if they could have their go at Jesus, they could knock him off his game. Didn't work. 
In Acts 5.17, the high priest and his associates are identified with the sect of the Sadducees. In Acts 23, verse 8, we learn that they did not believe in the existence of angels or of demons. And in verse 18 of this chapter, we read, they said there's no resurrection. But we've got a problem, don't we? Jesus has predicted His resurrection three times in the last three chapters. Chapter 8, 31, 9, 31, 10, 34. And then He alluded to it in 12, 10, and 11 when He said that He is going to be like the stone that was cast aside, but suddenly it becomes the chief cornerstone. Well, how did the stone that got cast aside become the cornerstone through the resurrection, through the power of God? So we've got a major conflict on our hands between the Sadducees and Jesus. If there's eternal life then we have accountability to God for what we do with Jesus the Son. The Sadducees believed that physical death meant that the soul and the body perished forever and there was no eternal rewards or punishments. So to them, the future of God's people would only be an improved version of the present. A future where you still got married and you're buried. Yeah, marriages might be better, life might be better, but at the end of the day, death remains. But God's plan is for a future where death is defeated, where those who are in Christ are promised a future resurrection and fullness of life in the presence of King Jesus. What a hope we have. What a hope we have of resurrection. And yet so many are still skeptical today. They're like the Sadducees. I, I don't believe all that resurrection life stuff. I don't believe all that eternal life stuff. So how is it that we can get it right about the resurrection and we know that's what Jesus wants us to do because in verse 24, do you see what he says to the Sadducees? He says, you're mistaken. And then in verse 27, just in case they didn't understand how mistaken they are, he said, you are greatly mistaken. So Jesus wants us, church, to get it right about the resurrection. You say, well, I already got it right about the resurrection. Well, good. I think you'll still find some principles in this message that will help you in your Christian life. First, we must come humbly to Jesus if we're going to get it right about the resurrection. The Pharisees come with a, a smart question, right? They're, they're, they're being sarcastic. And, and they're throwing this crazy hypothetical situation out there to try and disprove the resurrection. Secondly, we must read the scriptures correctly or rightly. And finally, we must trust in God who has the power to raise the dead to life. First, we must come to Jesus humbly. When I was in the seventh grade, I tried out for the junior high basketball team over here at Northside. I was an inconsistent shooter. I was a mediocre dribbler, but I loved the game. And I loved to go in my driveway, which was slanted and angled, a pretty terrible place to practice. And I used to love to pretend that I could hit that fadeaway jumper just like Jordan did. I missed it most of the time, but... I love the game of basketball. So I wasn't surprised when I didn't make the team, but what was surprising to me was when Coach Rob came into the boys' locker room after he had announced that I was cut. And he handed me a sheet of paper just like he handed to everyone else who was cut. It had a list of skills on there. Quickness, speed, rebounding, shooting, passing, defense. But there was one on there that I was not prepared for, and it was this. Coachability. Coachability. You see, the coaches weren't just looking for my present abilities. They were looking for my ability to grow in my ability. They weren't just evaluating how is he right now, but will he learn and grow and mature and be a good teammate? Will he receive instruction well? And on coachability, 
I got a three on a scale of zero to five. And as you can tell, I still haven't gotten over that. <laughs> so after a day of self-pity and wallowing around in the mud and loathing, because I'm thinking, I actually did better on other skills than I thought I would do, and I'm, like, I'm looking at that. If I would gotten a five on coachability, I might have been able to make the team. The coach might have said, well, he's not the greatest guy in the world, but we could mold him. We could make him into a good basketball player. And instead, I didn't get to get on the team because I wasn't coachable. Still not over it. <laughs> but what I did that day was, well, actually it was the next day, because at first I was just mad and wallowing in self-pity. But the next day I woke up and I said, you know what, I don't want to ever, I don't want it to ever be said of me again that he's not coachable. I want to become a good listener. I want to do whatever it requires to be a good teammate. And it's like that in coming to Christ, church. You're not going to be open to the reality of the resurrection life if you come to Jesus in arrogance. You've got to come humbly. You've got to come open. You've got to come open to the possibility that maybe Jesus really is the answer to all the questions that you have. That all the hope that you lack, that He's the one that can give it. And when you come to Him humbly and coachable, that's when you get answers for life that you really need. You see, that's true when you come to Jesus and it's true when you keep coming to Jesus as a believer. Unfortunately for the Sadducees, if we were going to score them on coachability, they'd get a goose egg, zero, nil. They are self-assured in their resurrection, excuse me, in their rejection of the resurrection. And it shows in their sarcastic question. So what they do is they take us back to the book of Moses in Deuteronomy. And they take us back to Deuteronomy 25, 5, and 6 where Moses says... If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Rather, her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband, of a husband's brother to her. Verse 6. And the first son that she bears will succeed to the name of his dead brother, that the name may not be blotted out of Israel. Do you see what the Sadducees are doing? They're taking the Bible and they're saying, okay, Jesus, let's take what Moses wrote way back in Deuteronomy 25. You say there's a resurrection, but what if the woman marries a brother and never has a son? And then she does it again, and she never has a son, and she does it seven times. What's going to happen then, Jesus, when all these people raise up into the resurrected life that you say there is? Well, who's she going to be married to? You see, their problem that they present to Jesus would undermine monogamy and marriage. Well, which one of these guys is she ultimately going to be married to? So there, Jesus, you've got a problem with Moses if you add a resurrection to Moses. So figure that one out, big guy. And Jesus says, well, there's not marriage or giving in marriage in heaven. What? We'll talk about that more in a moment. Here's the point I want you to get first. The Sadducees could have come to Jesus in humility. Right, they could have come with an honest question, but instead they came like teenagers. Sorry. But you know, you want to throw your mom or dad off and you like come up with this preposterous scenario to make them think that you're right and they're wrong. Guess what? Your mom and dad are right. Okay? If, if they're trying to obey the Lord and they're trying to serve Jesus and they're trying to lead you in the word to the best of their ability, Ephesians 6.1, every student should memorize it. Right? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. 
is not debatable. It's a command. It's in the scripture. If you want to honor Jesus and you live in your mom and dad's household and you're less than 18, or even if you're not less than 18, if you live in their household, children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. That was for free, mom and dad. You're welcome. But it's in the Bible. But see, they, they could have come without this sort of sarcastic mentality, but instead they come with arrogance and invalid assumptions. And the invalid assumption is that there's going to be marriage in the new heavens and the new earth. The marriage that we're leading to is the marriage of Christ and the bridegroom, His church. There's going to be a union of the multinational, multi-ethnic people of God united forever to the King of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, Jesus is the fulfillment of the law that we read in Deuteronomy 25. You say, well, what's all this remarriage stuff about anyway? Why are they concerned about keeping property rights in a name? Because you've got to get to Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of what is called leveret marriage. Well, what happens if somebody can't have a son? What's the deal with all the barren women in the Old Testament? The reality that God is showing us is even though it's impossible, even though it looks like there will not be the son that He's promised, somehow, miraculously, God gives the son. I mean, look at what happens with Ruth. Do you remember Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law? Right? She's, there's a famine in Bethlehem. They leave Bethlehem. They go to Moab. Moab, her sons take Moabite women as their wives. Her husband dies. And then she says, I'm going to go back to Bethlehem because now there's not a famine in Bethlehem. And guess what happens there? you remember? They get back to Bethlehem and Ruth says, I don't have uh, a husband. But Boaz is related to her husband. And you remember what happens? Boaz and Ruth end up getting married and doing exactly what Deuteronomy 25 talks about. Now, do you remember who Boaz and Ruth have as a son? Obed. You say, well, that's, who cares about Obed? You know who Obed's son was? Jesse. You know who Jesse's son was? David. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law of leverant marriage who gives you a name and a land and a standing in His forever kingdom. Because when Christ comes, you don't need all those laws anymore to preserve a line because He is the line through which every tribe and tongue and language and nation can come and enter into the kingdom of God. So they've missed it. They are mistaken. They are greatly mistaken. The word mistaken means to wander off course. They're like a man asking for directions. Doesn't happen. They just keep driving. <laughs> Fortunately, God invented the smartphone, or Steve Jobs invented the smartphone, and now that's not a very relevant illustration anymore. But if you're searching for answers this morning, I've got hope. Just drop the skepticism, drop the game, and come to Jesus as one who is humble and coachable, and listen to Him. He will speak to you. And He has spoken to you through His Word. Secondly, if we're going to come to Jesus, and if we're going to get it right about the resurrection, we've got to read the Scriptures correctly or rightly. The promise of the resurrection is not a new idea, right? It's throughout the Old Testament. Daniel 12.2 says, Many who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Psalm 23 is a prediction of Christ's resurrection. Did you know that, by the way? Though he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, verse 6, 
What will he do? He will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Though he dies, he will live forever. Psalm 73, 24 says, You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to your glory. Do you remember the prophets Elijah and Elisha? Both of them raised dead sons to life. When a dead man was thrown into Elisha's grave, suddenly he was resurrected. In Ezekiel 37, we read about dry bones that are raised up to live again. In Job 19, 25 and 26, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. The resurrection's all over the place. The reason the Sadducees have wandered off course is because they do not understand the Scriptures, verse 24. Now, that would be like somebody saying to Bill Gates that he doesn't understand computers. Or someone saying to Michael Jordan that he doesn't understand the game of basketball. You see, the problem with the Sadducees is where they think they are strongest is actually where they are weakest. They think they've got the Old Testament all figured out, that it's all about them, but it's actually all about Jesus. Jesus tells us that in Luke 24, that He would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day, so that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in His name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. Aren't you glad to know that you're in the Old Testament? That's what Jesus says right there. One day, the gospel will go forth from Jerusalem, and it's going to make its way to all nations, every tribe, tongue, language, and nation, and you're a part of that. But the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament as the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's called the Book of Moses. It's called the Law. It's called the Pentateuch. It's called the Tanakh. It's called the Torah. Those five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that's all they accepted as the Bible. And all those verses that I use from the Old Testament to prove to you that the resurrection is real, guess what? None of them are in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So, ha! There, Jesus, what are you going to do with that? Jesus goes, let's go to the burning bush. How about it? That's in Exodus, right? So, your salvation that you think only ends in death, do you remember what God said to Moses back there, Sadducees? I am the God of your father Jacob. Excuse me, Abraham, your father Isaac, and of Jacob. You say, I don't get it. I don't see resurrection there. Do you see what Jesus does? He uses the tense of a verb to prove his case. God didn't say, I was the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Back when they were living, he says, I am. Those guys are dead, and yet God is still their God. How is that possible? It requires a resurrection. Now, what's interesting is that Jesus takes a passage of Scripture written 1,400 years before His birth, and He argues for the resurrection based on the tense of a verb that is used. You say, well, what's the significance of that? You can trust the Bible. You can trust the Bible down to the last jot and tittle. You can trust it down to the tense of the grammar that is used. You can do that. If Jesus could do that 1,400 years after the text that He's quoting, we can do that 2,000 years after we're using the Bible that God has given to us. Which means when our culture says to us, the Bible doesn't say, just go back to the Bible. When our culture says to us that you've got to cave and you've got to capitulate, you've got to give in to what the culture wants a Christian to be, you don't have to do that. You can go to the inerrant, infallible, trustworthy Word of God. If Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are dead in the way that the Sadducees think that they are dead, then God's promises have an end date and they have gone unfulfilled. 
But God is a promise keeper. And He has the power to keep His promises. And ultimately, that is where a right understanding of Scripture leads to us, leads us to, right? Ultimately, if you read the message, you hear the Word of God, and you know that you are a fallen sinner in need of saving grace, and He promises that Jesus is the way to be saved, then we have a decision to make. Does God really have the power to do what He promised He was going to do in His Word? So thirdly, we must trust in God who has the power to raise the dead to life. We must trust in God who has the power to raise the dead to life. You see, the problem for the Sadducees is not just their misunderstanding of Scripture. It is also their failure to believe in or understand the power of God. Do you see that what Jesus is implying for us here, church? A right understanding of the Bible leads to a right understanding of the power of God. Have you ever encountered believers or people who say that they know Jesus and, and they blame God for the things they're doing that have nothing to do with godliness? Are you all here this morning? Yeah. That drives me crazy. There's nothing more frustrating pastorally than when people come and sit down and they tell me all their problems and concerns. That part's not frustrating. But the part that's frustrating is when you begin to ask questions about the Bible and biblical truth and living for God and holiness and purity and righteousness and their answers to the question, well, of course I'm not doing those things. Well, why do you expect to enjoy the power of God in your life? God has called you to holiness. He's called you to righteousness. He's called you to a family. He's called you to enjoy and adore and worship Jesus, the King of glory. And you can't live want like the world six days a week and walk into a church service one time and expect your life to be fixed if you're not going to surrender to the power of God. I just don't understand why God's not working in my life. Did you quit cheating? I don't know if I can do that. Well, come back when you're ready to quit cheating. We'll talk about the power of God in your life. Sorry, that was... It's not in the notes. Forgive me. <laughs> We've got to submit what we think and feel and believe, church, to what God's Word says. When we submit our feelings and our thoughts and our actions to the power and the authority of God, that is when we encounter the power of God for living. And with respect to the resurrection, God's Word shows us that He is a covenant-keeping God. For God to keep His covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, there's got to be a resurrection because God promises to Abraham, you're going to see the land. Well, how's he going to see the land when he's dead? He's got to be raised to life. Edwards puts it this way. The call of God establishes a relationship with God. And once a relationship with God is established, it bears the promise of God and it cannot be ended even by death. Jesus observes in verse 27, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Even in physical death, He has the power to keep those who give their lives to Him. I, I don't know about you, but I've been to more than my fair share of funerals. And one of the prayers that I love to pray at the end of a funeral is this. From Jude, verse 24, He is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory blameless with great joy. God will preserve those who entrust their lives to Him even through physical death. 1 Corinthians 15, our bodies are like a seed, sown a perishable body, but raised an imperishable body, sown in dishonor, 
raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power. When this perishable puts on the imperishable, and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Jesus is coming back. And He's coming back for His church. And He's going to raise us up on the last day for, to enjoy and to know and to worship Him. And this is what Jesus means, by the way, when He says we're not going to be married or given in marriage, but we'll be like angels. You say, Daniel, answer the question. I know it's a sarcastic question, but answer the question. Well, Jesus answers the question in verse 25. He says that we will be like angels in heaven. That's a simile. Right? He did not say we will be angels in heaven. So what Jesus is not saying is that when your loved one dies, that heaven gains an angel. Right? Or that they get their angels' wings. He's saying that we will be like angels. So what does that mean? In what way will we, will, we, will we be like an angel? Well, we will remain human beings, men and women, bearing the image of God. But like angels, we will not marry or be given in marriage. We won't marry anymore. And we will not die anymore. There will be no death for us. We will be forever united in the heavenlies, in the new heavens, and the new earth, with the one who alone possesses immortality and dwells in inapproachable light. 1 Timothy 6, 16. And while we will not become God, we will become partakers of the divine nature. 2 Peter 1, 4. You see, church, it's through our unbreakable union with Christ that He will forever keep us in His power in glorified and resurrected bodies. You say, okay, I, I believe all that, Daniel. What's the importance of that? It's very important. First, it means our bodies are not trash. It means your body, even now, can function as the temple of the Holy Spirit. There's a version of Christianity out there that says, I want my spirit to be rescued, but my body just doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want to to my body. That's foolishness. God came in the flesh so that your body, though it's affected by the fall and broken by sin, that it could be raised up and made new. Otherwise... We would say that God is powerless to overcome sin's effects on the body. But salvation is not just of our souls, it is of our soul and body. There's a church father named Justin Martyr writing a hundred years after Jesus' resurrection. And he says that man is both body and soul. And if Jesus is going to redeem mankind, then he has called the flesh to the resurrection and promises it everlasting life. His point is this. If Jesus leaves the body in the grave and you're just some spirit floating out there forever, that God hasn't saved mankind. He saved something else because man is body and soul together. Second, if there's no bodily resurrection, then it doesn't make sense for Jesus to come in the first place. If Jesus only needed to save our souls, then why did He come as a man to die? He came as a man to die so that He would suffer in the body what we deserve to suffer and so that our bodies could be raised up like His when He returns. In other words, Christmas exists so that Easter can count. Christmas exists so that Easter 
can count. Jesus comes in a body and He's raised in a body so we can live with Him bodily and enjoy Him forever. And that reality is going to be amazing. Jesus does not save you to make your old dead life better. He saves you to give you a new life with a new goal and a new timeline. Edwards says this, God's power to create and restore life bursts the limits of both logic and imagination. We can no more imagine heavenly existence than an infant in utero could imagine a Beethoven piano concert or the Grand Canyon at sunset. And when we rise up to this beautiful, wonderful, awe-inspiring new reality, yes, we will see our friends and our family who belong to Jesus. But our primary, I want you to hear this, church, our primary joy and focus will be our union with Christ as a member of God's global family. It, you're not going to care when you get to heaven if Fluffy made it to heaven or not. I know, it's a fun question to think about now. But when you get to heaven, you're not going to care anymore. Jesus is going to be so marvelous and so wonderful and so delightful. Your union with Christ is going to surpass every other relationship you've ever had. It's going to blow your minds. This is why Paul says in Philippians 3.14, I keep on pressing on for the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What is the prize? Is it that I get to see Fluffy again? No. It's I get to see my Savior who died for me. I get to shout His praises and sing His worth day after day after day. So church, I want to encourage you this morning that we don't need to worry about how the joys of this life are going to compare to the joys of the life to come. There's not going to be any comparison. So what does that mean for us right now? It means we need to live like that now. It's a joy to be a father. It's a joy to be a husband. It's a joy to be a mother and a daughter and a son and a, and a dog owner. You cat owners, I'm sorry. <laughs> but none of those things are compared to belonging to Christ. Now here's the ironic thing about the Christian life today. The more you cultivate and pursue union with Christ in this life, the better your relationships will be as a husband and a wife and a father and a son and a daughter. But the more we identify ourselves as those things and fail to cultivate our union with Christ, all this is broken. So if you want this to work, then stop focusing on this so much that you ignore the primary relationship that you were made for for all eternity, which is to be one with God's family, with Christ our King. For some today, you need resurrection hope. You say, all this stuff sounds like crazy talk. Could, could that really be true? It is true. And it's possible through Jesus. In John's Gospel, chapter 11, Jesus' friend Lazarus dies. And Martha comes to him weeping. And Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me will live even if he dies. You see, church, the eternal life that is out there one day when Jesus returns is a life that begins right now. Jesus calls it the abundant life. 
the proof of the resurrection of our bodies one day is something you can know on the inside right now because the Holy Spirit of God takes the Word of God and convinces you that though you're a sinner who ran away from God, that God came low and He ran after you. And for some here today, He might be chasing you in this very moment saying it's time to trade in the life of chasing after your own glory and to instead chase after the One who died for you so that you can be raised up to life everlasting. And if you don't have that hope this morning, the hope of everlasting, resurrected life with Jesus, I want to urge you church, don't wait another day. Don't wait another minute. I'm going to pray and ask our instrumentalists to come and then we're going to sing one quick song of response. And as we sing about the fact that Jesus paid the price for your sins so that you can be raised up to life with Him, if you need to come today, don't delay. Come. Would you pray with me? Our Father, our God, our Lord, our King, we thank You that You are coming again. And that the promise that You have made about our physical bodies is a promise that You will keep. God, that our eyes and our ears and our mouths and our hands, God, that they will all count in eternity. And that though we don't really fully comprehend the joys that we will have and the glory that we will behold, God, that it's going to be Amazing! It's going to be astounding. And God, my prayer this morning is that, that some who don't yet have the joy and the hope of the resurrection on the inside, that today you would draw them near, that you would draw them close, and that you would rescue their souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.